Bible according to Mark, Mark chapter 13. Uh, this morning we'll jump around a few different places, so uh, just bear with me. But after you get to Mark 13, put your finger there and then uh, go ahead and flip uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. And as we're going there, let me uh, open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for your love to us. We thank you for uh, the scriptures this morning. We have a sure promise that you have not left us, but that you are coming again. And so, Father, Lord, this morning, as we consider these words this morning, as we seek to understand and the words you've given us, I pray that our hearts will be inflamed with truth, with courage, hopefulness, with a sense that you have not abandoned us. So, Father, Lord, we ask that uh, you would uh, encourage us in our moment today, in church history, and what the days ahead may bring. We just pray for steadfast faithfulness to the Scriptures. Father, we ask that you do all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, Mark 13 is where we will be. Um, before we get there, uh, I just need to say that oftentimes through our lives, we can, uh, we can fall into the pattern of just going through the motions, right? This is nothing new. If you've been around church at all for any length of time, then you'll understand that there comes a point where uh, you initially get saved, you hear the gospel, you're on fire for the Lord, and you're just like, let's get after it. But then, the passage of time and week in and week out, and you don't see the results mainly in uh, your evangelism and your outreach and in your zeal and love for the Lord, you, you begin to get a bit complacent. You begin to get um, unsure if your zeal is in the right place or if it was misplaced. It's easy in our lives to simply go through the motions. We, we come to church and we we sing songs and we read the scriptures and we, we say our prayers and, and that's just kind of it. The disconnect from the real world of how we actually walk this out is all too real for ourselves. Not only that, but uh, oftentimes if we're honest, even though we know the scriptures, we know that Jesus said there would be hard things in our life, even though we know he said that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, yet even then we still expect, in a sense, life to become easy. Long for. Long for not to embrace trials or persecutions. We want life to be easy. We want our evangelism of our friends to go something like this. Hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? No, I haven't. Tell me about him. As opposed to what we would often get. Hey, have you ever heard about Jesus? Get that out of my face. We expect life to be easy. We expect our evangelism to be easy. We expect our work and our labor to be easy. And so we're confronted with these two realities that life becomes uh, merely of going through the motions and uh, unexpected hardship we're left with the question of how can we actually hold on to what we say we believe? And it's almost to this question that the author of Hebrews pens these words. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. 
The, he, the author of Hebrews it says, since we have all of these things, right, since we have a great high priest who has made an atonement for us, who's rendered access to God possible, since all of these things are true, then he says in verse 23, let us then hold fast the confession of our faith, of our hope, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's almost like the writer of Hebrews seems to understand that it's going to become difficult to actually hold on to what we say we believe. And he says, well, let us hold on to it anyways. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That is, we believe in who Christ is and what Christ has done. He says, let us hold on to that hope without wavering, without shifting, without uh, no longer believing, without any kind of deconstruction. Let us hold on to this hope. But notice what he grounds his, his steadfastness in, his immovableness in. Why should we hold on to this hope without wavering? The end of verse 23 is key. For he who promised is faithful. Listen, brothers and sisters, we do not hold on to the hope of our confession because in it we think that we get something. We don't hold on to the hope of what Christ has done and who Christ is. We don't hold on to the confession of the gospel without wavering because in our holding on to it, we somehow become super Christians or somehow life doesn't become complacent, but rather we hold on to the gospel. Because the one who has promised what the gospel accomplished is faithful. You say, Pastor, I thought we were preaching on Mark. We'll get there. Flip back to Mark chapter 13. Just understand that all of the New Testament, after Christ has ascended to heaven, the majority of the New Testament takes up as its central theme to get you and I to hold on and actually believe what it says. And it grounds our, 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 our holding on to it into the faithfulness of the one who's promised what it's accomplished. So Mark chapter 13, let's uh, recap where we've been the last few weeks. In the opening verses, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. This would have been a uh, life upending for New Testament early uh, Jewish figure, they would have seen the temple as the meeting place of God. They would have known that if there is no temple, there is no religion. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And so knowing this, the disciples say, well, when will these things be? And what will be the signs that the end of the world is, is upon us? And so Jesus begins then to, in verse 5 and following, to give these signs of the end of the age. Now, if you Want to know more about that? Go to the last few weeks of sermons. But this is the context in which we find our text this morning. He then lists the signs, and he says that these are actually not signs, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not, uh, let the reader understand. And then he goes on to explain that, like, there's going to come a time of great tribulation. That's going to get worse before it gets better. This is leading up to where we'll pick up our text this morning, which is verse 24. Look at it with me. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, 
and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The title of this morning's message is that simply Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. It's the title. The first point this morning is Jesus is coming on a rescue mission. Jesus is coming on a rescue mission. Look at verse 24 with me. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Notice what it says, opening this verse. It says, but in those days, we should ask ourselves, what days? What days is he referring to? And then he he clarifies it further for us. Those days after the tribulation. Whatever Jesus is about to say next, know that he's talking about something to come after the tribulation. What tribulation? The tribulation mentioned in verses 19 through 22. In those days, such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So thus here Jesus is giving us what will take place after this. This is the tribulation. He says it's coming. Prepare for it. Stay awake for it. Know that it's coming so that you might not be led astray. And he says, here's what's going to happen afterwards. And he gives these four indications, right? These four cosmic indications that this mission of rescue that Jesus will partake on is one of cosmic proportion. Cosmic proportion. These four indications all come from above. Here Jesus is referring and using apocalyptic language. If you, if you have the NIV, what, what the NIV has done to kind of show you uh, what Jesus is doing here, they actually like set it as if it's poetic literature and they actually put quotes around it and so it seems as if Jesus is quoting something um, but it's not a direct quote. It's, it's rather, it, these are allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 13.10, Ezekiel 32.7-8, Joel 2.10 uh, and 3.15. These are all allusions that, that something of massive cosmic apocalyptic something is about to go down and listen he says everyone's going to know everyone's going to know and then the the statements themselves are parallel Uh, so one line is given and then repeated or built upon so right so you have the sun will be darkened you have the moon not giving light 
You have stars falling and powers and the heaven shaken. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? What does it look like? Here's what I'm, I'm here to tell you this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. Here's what I do know, though. I do know that it's going to be big. Right? It's going to be massive, right? It's this symbolic language of something of cosmic, cosmic importance and significance. Revelation uh, chapter 6 uh, speaks something of this. It says, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sh- sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So, so, Pastor, what's going on? Well, after the tribulation, that's what the text starts with. He says, these massive things are going to happen. He said, well, Pastor, like if a star fell into the earth, it would take us all out. So it can't be, there you go, can't be real. Listen, he's he's not speaking literally here. This isn't a hyper, real, uh, literal thing that Jesus is saying, yeah, actually stars are going to fall out of the heaven. This would be like uh, you telling your friend, uh, hey, I saw a shooting star last night. And did you really see a shooting star? No, what, what did you see? You seen a meteorite, right, that lit up the sky. But this, what Jesus is referring to, is something of cosmic significance, cosmic proportion in this rescue mission that he is on. Look at verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, to which we should ask the question, who will see who will see? It says, then they will see the Son of Man coming. The NIV will say that the people will see. This is set in opposition. This is where context becomes important. This is set in opposition to the folks in verses 21 and 22 saying, look, you got to come over here. you got to see him over here. You see, this mission that Jesus will partake on is a mission with worldwide visibility. Because in verse 21, they said, look, here's the Christ. Or look, there he is. He says, don't, don't believe it. Well, why not, Jesus? Why shouldn't we believe that if someone came to you uh, tomorrow and says, hey, you know, you know, your pastor talking about Jesus, he's over here, you need to come, come see him. Listen, why shouldn't you believe it? Jesus says, listen, he's going to come and everyone's going to know who it is. Cosmic proportion, worldwide visibility. Jesus is saying it's not going to be like this, or it's not going to be like that, but rather it's going to be like this. And note that this is all rooted in the question that the disciples ask, how will we know these things to be true? And Jesus' response is, uh, here's how you know, and, and by the way, don't be led astray, right? Verse 6 talks about uh, not being led astray. Right? That's if Jesus, and he actually ends there, right, at the end of chapter 13, with stay awake, that you might not uh, miss, that you might not be led astray. This idea of, of Jesus is coming back, very quickly finds itself in the New Testament after Jesus ascended. Uh, some, some folks that Paul was writing to, he has to actually, like, they're, like, they're teaching that, oh, yeah, Jesus already come back, and so you can kind of live however you want. Don't, don't worry about it. He's already come back. And so Paul has to take himself, he has to take this issue up himself and deal with what Jesus is actually talking about in Mark 13. So flip over to 2 Thessalonians. Flip there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is Paul writing uh, to the believers in Thessalonica. And, and he, he's dealing with this issue of folks teaching the church that, that Jesus has already come back. And so you've either missed it or, or you need to come be a part of the secret knowledge, right? Second Thessalonians 
chapter 2. Look at verse 1. This is Paul writing. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. I don't want to preach Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, but here's a couple thoughts on this text as it relates to Mark chapter 13. As early as 20 to 30 years after Christ uh, was dead, buried, rose again, and ascended uh, to heaven, the church was already concerned with having a proper understanding of his coming again. So in short succession, right, and even think of like uh, Jesus as he's ascending, right, like he ascends to heaven, and he says, uh, I'm coming back, and the disciples just stand there like, okay, I guess we'll just wait on him. And the angel's like, hey, get to work. Why are you standing around? So as early as 20 to 30 years, you get these false teachings that kind of creep up and be like, yeah, we, we missed it. You, know, he, you guys didn't hear? Came back last week. Missed it. So as early as 20 to 30 years after Christ was dead, the church was already concerned with a proper understanding of Jesus' return. Number two, Paul argues that his, his argument in encouraging the believers in Thess- 2 Thessalonians is built on an understanding that Jesus would not return unless a few things had already taken place. Number one, rebellion comes first. You see that in verse 3. Man of lawlessness revealed in verse 3. He will oppose and exalt himself as God, which will draw people away from the worship of the true God, uh, and that this person is currently being restrained. Uh, And and yet, notice, Paul says that, uh, yeah, like all the, you know Jesus hasn't come back yet because all these things haven't taken place. And yet he says, "But, but, but the mystery of lawlessness, already at work. What is Paul referring to, this mystery of lawlessness? What he's referring to is that people are being led away from the true gospel. That folks' worship is being drawn away from the one true God. And Paul says, finally, this lawless one will, will be revealed and then killed by Jesus. Now, now, here's why this is important. Because in Paul's mind, He is able to say that Christ has not come back yet because certain things have not taken place. Therefore, Paul concludes the chapter by saying in verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So go back to Mark chapter 
13. He says, uh, they will see. Then who will see? The people will see the Son of Man coming. He says, everyone will know. When, this, when Jesus comes back, you'll know. You won't need folks to be like, hey, what's going on? You'll know. And he alludes to himself as this, the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. This is important. This is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Uh, hearing it, uh, we should think first uh, of Adam, right? The first Son of Man, Adam, who was put in a perfect garden without sin, without corruption, given one job to do, and he failed. And Paul would build the argument in Romans that you and I, apart from Christ, we're all in Adam. Like we are sons of Adam. This is why it's so important that once you believe in Christ and what Christ has done, you become a son of Christ, right? You are in Christ. But Jesus is here primarily referring and linking his words with the book of Daniel. So go ahead and flip to Daniel chapter 7. I know you're like, Pastor, what are you doing? Daniel chapter 7, flip there. Um, I told you we'd be jumping around this morning. Flip the, Daniel chapter 7, as you're flipping there, uh, let me give you a bit of context here because it's important to understand well what, when jesus says they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great glory and power what is he what is he talking about what is he doing because there's all kinds in our american western uh minds that, that we just simply we just read that and be like i have no idea what that means let me read you the next line we just kind of pass over it but for jesus hearers for his disciples they would have heard son of man language and immediately their minds would have perked up this is messianic this was this was important language Jesus is using here. So Daniel chapter 7 is set in the midst of a literary unit from Daniel 2 to 7, concerned primarily with the pressure among exiled Jews to worship the king of Babylon. Daniel has a vision that reveals four beasts rising out of the sea to attack Israel. Uh, the ten-horned fourth beast spawns another little horn which rages against God and his people. As the beast emerged to attack the faithful the heavenly court is seated in judgment over them. Multiple thrones are set in place while God comes to take his seat. Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. This denotes a human-looking figure who is given privileges normally reserved for God, namely authority, glory, sovereign power, and the worship of men of every language. Daniel's vision is one of suffering and exaltation. The saints both suffer at the hands and are simultaneously given the kingdom along with its sovereignty and power. So I want you to zoom in. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This is Daniel's vision. He says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, so, so pause. Think critically here with me. To like, uh, I have a professor in seminary. He, he says this line all the time. Like, don't turn your brains off here. Okay? Don't turn your brains off here. Look what, look what Daniel just said. Did you pick up on it? Did you hear? He said, one like a son of man is coming. How is he coming? With the clouds of heaven. What's going to happen when he gets there? What's he going to do? He's going to give a dominion and glory and a kingdom. 
Right? So go back to Mark chapter 13. Jesus says, uh, after the tribulation, uh, all these apocalyptic things will happen and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The point is that what Jesus is saying here is that He is the Son of Man. He will be coming back. And this ties directly into the Old Testament understanding of how the world would actually end. He will have great power. He will have great glory, which they will see. Now, pause. Okay, that's that a lot, and I know this is a, it's a heavy text. What should our response to this be? Our response should be one of worship and exaltation. When we read Mark chapter 13, verse 24 to 26, our hearts should pause and consider the greatness of our coming King. You say, well, why? Why should we worship, Pastor? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Because the mission on which Jesus is coming back on is indeed a rescue mission. Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then he will send out. So Jesus is coming back. He's coming with great power and great glory. And why is he coming? Why is Christ coming back? Have you ever thought of this? Why would Jesus need to come back? Verse 27 tells us he's coming for you, Christian. Follower of Christ, he's coming for you. Notice this verse has nothing about judgment, although that will come. Rather, this text is meant to uh, reassure your heart that through tribulations and through trials that, that Christ has not abandoned you. He's not. It should set our hearts on fire because He will gather them from everywhere, from all the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is a comforting word uh, for Mark's readers and hearers who were about to be, and according to some, uh, already scattered wondering what has happened. He's reassuring them that he's coming back. And he's coming back for those who he's chosen. Look, look what it says, verse 27. He will send out the angels and gather his elect or his chosen ones. Who, who, who are these chosen ones? These chosen ones are the ones who believe in him and follow him. Revelation chapter 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The main point that I need you to get out of verses 24 to 27 is simply, Jesus is coming back. He will not abandon you. He has not abandoned you. Christian, do you understand this fully and the implications it has and how we actually are to live our lives? For when Paul writes to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution, he's not saying run from it, Timothy. 
Rather, he's saying embrace it because we know the one who is faithful uh, to his word and to his promises will hold true. And this is a promise of Christ that he is coming back. Therefore, we should not walk with fear. We should not walk with timidity in our understanding of the gospel. We should not walk with reservation and actually sharing the gospel with those around us. There should never be a sense when we try to talk to our, our loved ones, our family members, and we say, listen, uh, mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, listen, I need to tell you about Jesus. We should never, in the back of our minds, go like, ah, oh, gosh, what if they don't like me? We should be emboldened. That doesn't mean we're arrogant. It doesn't mean... That we're heavy-handed. Is Christ ever heavy-handed with those he loves? No. We are to reach out. We are to evangelize the nations, right? The, 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 the angels talking to the disciples after Jesus has ascended. They're like, what, why are you guys just standing around? He who has all power and authority has sent you out on a mission. Listen, you and I are sent out on mission. You see, I said in the beginning that uh, it is easy for us to become complacent. It's easy for us to go into the pattern of life. Now, a pattern of life is good and godly if it follows the way God actually intended us to live. If the pattern of our life is one of constant submission to the Word of God and gathering, this is why I'll never like say, like, well, you should, we probably shouldn't come to church every Sunday morning because it's a pattern, right? That's it's ridiculous. Uh, we should because the Lord commanded us to. It should be a pattern. That's a good and godly pattern that we would gather together. We would encourage one another in the word. That we would sing worship to our God. But where it becomes complacency is when we're no longer bothered by our pursuit or lack of pursuit of holiness. When we're no longer bothered by the ones who sit by us week in and week out, who we work alongside day in and day out, when we are no longer bothered by the fact that these people don't love the Lord. There should be a holy fever in your souls that longs for others to see Christ. Like, this should drive us to prayer. This should drive us to prayer because you and I can't change folks' hearts. Me up here on this stage preaching, nothing is possible without Christ uh, working, without the Holy Spirit working in the words and in your hearts when you actually hear the word. And so we plead. We plead with folks to repent and believe the gospel, and then we trust God to actually carry it out. It's easy to become complacent. And then we expect life to be easy. We expect no persecution. We expect uh, simply because we live in the West, because we live in America, that like, uh, in order to share our faith, we should, we should be able to do so without persecution. And so listen, this is, this is mind-blowing for you. We expect to be able to share our faith without persecution. So when we encounter persecution in the sharing of our faith, we say, we must be doing it wrong. Therefore, shutting down our evangelism shutting down our witness to the gospel. Think about it for a moment. When was the last time you had a conversation with an unbeliever that was pushed towards sharing the gospel? Just think about it. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Listen, he already knows. 
and he's not angry with you. This is not a, this is not a drive-by guilt kind of thing. This is really just looking in our hearts and understanding, like, if we truly believe Jesus is coming back, then how then should our lives actually look? Like, if we truly believe that at any moment he's going to crack the skies and burst onto the scene, how would we live our lives? Expect persecution. Expect in sharing your faith that you will be told to be quiet. How can we hold on to what we believe? If we truly believe Christ is coming again, if we truly believe uh, in the gospel, that the gospel is the only thing that can change lives, like, uh, oftentimes I feel like we get into such a complacency that we think, well, maybe it's really not the gospel they need. Maybe they just need some marriage counseling. Or, 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 or maybe they just need some medication. Right? Now, that's not to say that those aren't good and godly things. But it is to say that the gospel, at the root of all issues, the gospel is the only cure. The good news of what God has done for us and who Christ is, is the only cure available for us. I say this in light of a week where many of you will go out to the polls and cast your vote. Listen, and you should. You should. Do your civic duty. Live quiet lives and live at peace with all those around you. That's what Peter would say. You should vote, but you should not put your hope and your trust and your faith in that that's actually going to drive the outcome. It's only the gospel. It's only the gospel that can change men and women's lives. And listen, we should embrace it. We should embrace it. I feel like oftentimes we get so scared, like, ah, we should just embrace it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because the one who's promised, the one who said he is coming back, is faithful. He's faithful. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for the scripture. Thank you for this promise that you are coming back. Lord, and as we'll see next week, Father, like, what does that mean? How should we then live in the, the here and now? What you tell the disciples, what you say to them, you say to all, stay awake. As we consider those truths deeper next week, Father, I pray throughout this week you will build up in us just a, a love for the promise. May we spot in our lives areas where maybe we've held back from actually truly believing this promise. Maybe you show us throughout this coming week where we've, we've kind of hedged our bets and, well, maybe he's not coming back in our lifetime. Lord, may we look to the promise of your coming with great glory and power. May we be encouraged to live in that power today. Father, may we look to uh, you coming on the rescue mission to save sinners. And may we be encouraged that you have not forgotten us. You have not abandoned us. No matter what life throws our way. Father, we want to be encouraged. We want to be uh, live lives worthy of the gospel. I pray you help us with that this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.